We are uh, currently in a series in the book of Luke um, called Luke, the Gospel from the Outside In. And I just want to jump right in uh, as we are limited with time here today by looking at Luke chapter 8. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn there with me? Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 25. We're going to spend our time here. Luke chapter 8, verse 22 through 25. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Storms on the Sea of Galilee were nothing new. As you might notice from this uh, Beautiful picture. (laughs) Um, Sea of Galilee uh, sits pretty low in a valley. In fact, it sits at about 700 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded by these steep hills that you can see. So what happens is the cooler air sort of rushes down the ravines, often around the lake, and collides with the warmer air above it, creating this sort of perfect environment for an instant storm in such a confined area. And this happens often on the Sea of Galilee, so this is nothing new. The people in the boat probably would have experienced this at one point or another, being fishermen. However, on this particular day, the disciples and Jesus experienced a storm that was greater than usual. In the Greek, which is the original language that the Gospel of Luke is written in, the word is seismos, meaning it is a hurricane of force winds, large waves, and a sort of earthquake on the water. And between the rain and the waves, the boat that they were in began to take on water. Just this past summer, I I, I sort of from the shore of Camp Spofford sort of gleefully watched as somebody sort of like took on water in their canoe and they started to sink. I know I'm a terrible person for that, but um, hey, it's summer, carefree, living life. Um, now, you got to understand something. As I said, these are professional fishermen. These guys would have grown up on this lake. They would have fished in this lake. They were, they were used to uh, bad weather. These were not amateurs. They are professional fishermen, and they are getting worried. And I'm willing to bet that they tried a few things, okay, before they decided to go and get Jesus. And speaking of Jesus, where is Jesus? Jesus is sleeping. After a long day of pouring himself out, in ministry. This is what I love about Jesus. He shows us his humanity all throughout the Gospels. After a long day of pouring himself out in ministry and teaching, he fell asleep in the boat. Mark's Gospel adds a little detail. It says, but he was in the stern, that's the back of the boat, asleep on the cushion. Here is the Son of God, Savior of the world, displaying his humanity by taking a nap 
in the back of the boat during an eventful moment. You know, in some ways, it reminds me of Bill Murray. Did anybody catch the story about Bill Murray recently in the news? Apparently, and this is a true story, Bill Murray, and I'm not surprised here, slept through his own Lifetime Achievement Award press conference because he's Bill Murray, and he plays by his own rules. And that's a true story. Not surprised at all, but the thing is, they let Bill sleep. (laughs) Not so with Jesus. These guys went and woke him up. Uh, Now, at some point, these experienced fishermen were overcome with enough fear that they thought it would be a good idea to wake up Jesus, their master, and they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. And then it says that he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Notice that the storm didn't just settle down. It stopped. The waves don't lessen immediately the water becomes like a sheet of glass. The king of the kingdom has just exercised his power and his authority over nature. All three of the gospel accounts have Jesus at this point turn and rebuke the storm. And then he turns his attention to rebuke his disciples. He rebuked them for their apparent lack of faith. And he said in verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? And the point is being made very clear. They should have trusted in Jesus' ability to care for them. Jesus' rhetorical question is, where is your faith? But it turns into a statement, you should have trusted me. This is an important question to ponder because when the storms of life hit, they almost always appear stronger to us than Jesus. And we often act like Jesus is not in the boat. So we should ask the same question Jesus asks of his followers to ourselves. Where is your faith? When the storm is raging, and Jesus is sleeping, what looks more powerful to you? When the storm is raging, and Jesus is sleeping, what looks more powerful to you? You know, one of the natural realities of being in pastoral ministry is that you, ha- you sort of have this unique opportunity to see and often walk with people in their storms. And so in just a very, I would say, relatively short amount of time, I feel like I've seen some real storms. Not only have I gone through some, but I've experienced some with others, some up-close and personal storms. Some of these storms have had a devastating effect on people that I love. Health crisis, loss of jobs, marriages exploded, premature death, Premature birth, loneliness, ever-present anxiety, crippling fear, mounting debt, depression, substance abuse. I could go on and on about the storms of life that I've been part of in people's lives. 
Family, in case you didn't know this, storms are all around us. And in some of these spaces, Jesus can seem absent at best and asleep at worst. I came across this quote this week that sort of like framed the status of your faith when it comes to the storm. It says, to overcome trial, one must have faith in God's goodness. The faith in view here is not initial faith, but an applied faith that functions in the midst of pressure. It is a faith that has a depth of understanding and can be drawn upon in tough times. It is faith that kicks in and recognizes that God is in control even in the face of disaster. For the disciples, the storm didn't produce faithlessness. It didn't produce lack of faith in them. The storm simply revealed it. And storms have the same ability to show us where our faith really stands when things get rough. Did you notice when the storm occurred? It's kind of subtle, but kind of an interesting point. The storm came while the disciples were following Jesus, not before. They followed Jesus out into the boat, onto the lake, and that's when the storm came, not before. Being a Christian does not obligate Jesus to make our lives trouble-free or convenient. That's a big one. We love that. In fact, Jesus clearly tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Not you may, you will have tribulation. But then he says, take heart, because I have overcome the world. The point of this passage is not to promise deliverance from storm forces every time they arise, but that when we ally ourselves to Jesus, such forces will ultimately be overcome because Jesus has come, overcome ultimately. Let me say this, and I realize that this may be controversial for some, but it is my conviction that for every believer, every storm has a purpose. It is my belief, and I think scripture gives us numerous examples of this, that there is not one wasted storm for the Christian. So in other words, every storm has a divine intended purpose in your life, and ultimately it is to give you a bigger view of who Jesus is. And you may disagree with me on that, and that's all right, we can arm wrestle afterwards. But I am of the opinion that just because we don't understand why something happens does not mean that God couldn't possibly have a plan or a purpose in that thing. You just don't know about it. Romans chapter eight famously says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. You know what that, that, that phrase right there, all things, means? All things. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We might have the expectant faith to believe Jesus can or will stop 
the storm. But my question is, do we have the same faith to believe that Jesus could be using the storm for our good? Do we have the same faith to believe that Jesus could be potentially using a storm for our good? That the storm is just a tool Jesus is using to give you a bigger picture of who he is. Well, a bigger view of Jesus is sort of how the story finds its peak moment. Verse 25, and they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey him? Take notice that even though the storm is done, we're talking verse 25 here, we've moved on from the storm. The storm is done, it has ceased, it is calm. The disciples are still terrified. Terrified. But they aren't afraid of the weather at this point. They are terrified of something else. They are terrified of Jesus himself. Flooding their souls is not the happy realization that their friend has more power than they had estimated, but the shocking new awareness that they have misunderstood his very identity. See, Jesus' disciples, they knew the scriptures. They knew passages like Psalm 89, 9, where the psalmist David writes directly to Yahweh. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. This was a realization moment. This was a realization moment that God himself was in the boat. And they were exposed. And they were terrified. They were aware. They were aware very clearly of their own sin. They were aware of their unbelief. They were aware that they were in the presence of a holy God. They caught a glimpse of the power and the authority and the holiness and the sovereignty of God in the flesh and it terrified them. The threat of the storm was nothing in comparison to the greater threat of standing before a holy God. You know, this passage, although short, has a, packs a punch of a great truth. Um, and it reminds us that Jesus is more powerful than any storm we will face. But we must not think of this account being meant to merely give us strength for the hard times. We, we oftentimes have a real, I think, sort of issue where we kind of make ourselves the hero of every story. Well, this is perfect. This is how I can get something out of this. This is, this is what I can get from Jesus, and this is how I can possibly make my life better or, or get through what I'm dealing with. The focus primarily of this passage is not on us. I know that might be hard to, to hear, right? In a, in a, we're, we're programmed to think that everything revolves around us. I know. But here we've got a passage that points directly to who Jesus is. That's what we're sort of doing right now. We're going through these passages in Luke, and this particular section is meant to point us to who Jesus is. We, we will see ourselves in the story. We will see how Jesus will speak to our trials, but it's about him. 
primarily. It's about his authority. It's not about our problems. It's about his greatness. And no matter what the storm is, Jesus promises to walk through it with you and me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that God doesn't just say, you know what, you're gonna have trials, you're gonna have tribulations, and you're on your own. No, Jesus is there. He's in the boat. There's this famous story in Daniel chapter three. I love this story. We, we touched on it a few weeks ago, but Daniel chapter three about the, the, the Babylonian captivity, right? Daniel and his friends, Jewish boys are taken to Babylon in their conquest. And one of the interesting things about the Babylonian culture is that when they wanted to win a war, they assimilated their captives into their culture. That's how they won. They erased their captives. They erased their identity. In the case of Daniel and his friends, it was sort of, we want to take the Jewishness right out of you. You're going to eat our food. You're going to learn our customs. You're going to learn our language. You're going to be educated by us. You're going to intermarry. We're going to erase your Jewish identity. And that's how we're going to win. And if you remember the story, Daniel chapter 3, he's got three uh, Jewish friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who along with Daniel, they were captured in this Babylonian captivity. And these three young men sort of grew wise and grew in stature and respected. And they became high appointed officials in Babylon. And, and the other Babylonian officials in that time were very jealous of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, and their, their, their goal was to get the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, to command all the people to do something abrupt. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he sort of erected this golden statue. Perhaps you remember seeing pictures. If you grew up in the church uh, of this, I I remember felt boards and that whole thing. Uh, But uh, these three men, ultimately they refused to bow down and worship this idol, this, this lesser god of Babylon. And because of that, the pressure was put upon King Nebuchadnezzar to do something about it. And King Nebuchadnezzar did. If you remember the story, King Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into a fiery furnace. This furnace wasn't just the normal day-in, day-out furnace. It says that he heated it up seven times hotter than the normal temperature. But these young men had such great faith that the true God would save him. Daniel chapter three highlights this spot. If this be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Essentially what they're saying here is we believe that God can, God will, and even if he doesn't, we will trust him. This is like exciting, right? Like, I mean, these guys are about to get thrown into a fiery furnace and they're basically, you know, telling this king to, you know what? Um, it's, it's exciting, right? And it's, it's a moment of faith. It's a moment of high elevated faith. And of course, if you know the outcome, when King Nebuchadnezzar looked into the fire, he didn't just see three men that he had thrown into the fire. He saw four, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, And who else? Jesus, the Son of God. Whether you have 
little faith in the storm or if you have great faith in the fire, there is one variable that is constant in both scenarios and that is that Jesus is there. Jesus is there. And so Elm City Church, we are coming in from all walks of life today. There are people here that are going through crisis. There are people that are going through storms. There are people that are on mountaintop, uh, mountaintop experiences today. Things are going great. But whatever you are going through today, I want to say this to you. Jesus is able. Jesus is able. He is with you. And I believe because he has shown himself to be faithful that you can trust him.